The Slaughterhouse Five, Chapter Three. The Germans and the dog were engaged in a military operation, which had an amusingly self-explanatory name—a human enterprise, which is seldom described in detail, whose name alone, when reported as news or history, gives many war enthusiasts a sort of post-coital satisfaction. It is in the imagination of combat's fans the divinely listless love play that follows the orgasm of victory. It is called mopping up. The dog, who had sounded so ferocious in the winter distances, was a female German shepherd. She was shivering. Her tail was between her legs. She had been borrowed that morning from a farmer. She had never been to war before. She had no idea what game was being played. Her name was Princess. Two of the Germans were boys in their early teens. Two were ramshackle old men, droolers as toothless as carp. They were irregulars armed and clothed fragmentarily with junk taken from real soldiers who were newly dead. So it goes. They were farmers from just across the German border, not far away. Their commander was a middle-aged corporal, red-eyed, scrawny, tough as dried beef, sick of war. He had been wounded four times and patched up and sent back to war. He was a very good soldier, about to quit, about to find somebody to surrender to. His bandy legs were thrust into golden cavalry boots, which he had taken from a dead Hungarian colonel on the Russian front. So it goes. Those boots were almost all he owned in this world. They were his own. An anecdote. One time a recruit was watching him bone and wax those golden boots, and he held one up to the recruit and said, If you look in there deeply enough, you'll see Adam and Eve. Billy Pilgrim had not heard this anecdote, but lying on the black ice there, Billy stared into the patina of the corporal's boots, saw Adam and Eve in the golden depths. They were naked. They were so innocent, so vulnerable, so eager to behave decently. Billy Pilgrim loved them. Next to the golden boots were a pair of feet which were swaddled in rags. They were crisscrossed by canvas traps, were shod with hinged wooden clogs. Billy looked up at the face that went with the clogs. It was the face of a blonde angel, of a 15-year-old boy. The boy was as beautiful as Eve. Billy was helped to his feet by the lovely boy, by the heavenly androgyne. And the others came forward to dust the snow off Billy, and then they searched him for weapons. He didn't have any. The most dangerous thing they found on his person was a two-inch pencil stub. 
three inoffensive bangs came from far away. They came from German rifles. The two scouts who had ditched Billy and Weary had just been shot. They had been lying in ambush for Germans. They had been discovered and shot from behind. Now they were dying in the snow, feeling nothing, turning the snow to the color of raspberry sherbet. So it goes. So Roland Weary was the last of the three musketeers. And Weary, bug-eyed with terror, was being disarmed. The corporal gave Weary's pistol to the pretty boy. He marveled at Weary's cruel trench knife, said in German that Weary would no doubt like to use the knife on him to tear off his face with the spiked knuckles, to stick the blade into his belly or throat. He spoke no English, and Billy and Weary understood no German. Nice playthings you have, the corporal told Weary, and he handed the knife to an old man. Isn't that a pretty thing, hmm? He tore open Weary's overcoat and blouse. Brass buttons flew like popcorn. The corporal reached into Weary's gaping bosom as though he meant to tear out his pounding heart, but he brought out Weary's bulletproof Bible instead. A bulletproof Bible is a Bible small enough to be slipped into a soldier's breast pocket over his heart. It is sheathed in steel. The corporal found the dirty picture of a woman and the pony in Weary's hip pocket. What a lucky pony, eh? he said. Hmm? Hmm? Don't you wish you were that pony? He handed the picture to the other old man. Spoils of war. It's yours. All yours, you lucky lad. Then he made Weary sit down in the snow and take off his combat boots, which he gave to the beautiful boy. He gave Weary the boy's clogs. So Weary and Billy were both without decent military footwear now, and they had to walk for miles and miles with Weary's clogs clacking, with Billy bobbing up and down, up and down, crashing into Weary from time to time. Excuse me, Billy would say, or I beg your pardon. They were brought to last at last to a stone cottage at a fork in the road. It was a collecting point for prisoners of war. Billy and Weary were taken inside, where it was warm and smoky. There was a fire sizzling and popping in the fireplace. The fuel was furniture. There were about twenty other Americans in there, sitting on the floor with their backs to the wall, staring into the flames thinking whatever there was to think, which was zero. Nobody talked. Nobody had any good war stories to tell. Billy and Weary found places for themselves, and Billy went to sleep with his head on the shoulder of an unprotesting captain. The captain was a chaplain. He was a rabbi. He'd, not be, he'd been shot through his hand. Billy travelled in time, opened his eyes, found himself staring into the glass eyes of a jade-green mechanical owl, 
The owl was hanging upside down from a rod of stainless steel. The owl was Billy's optometer in his office in Ilium. An optometer is an instrument for measuring refractive errors in eyes, in order that corrective lenses may be prescribed. Billy had fallen asleep while examining a female patient who was in the chair on the other side of the owl. He had fallen asleep at work before. It had been funny at first. Now Billy was starting to get worried about it, about his mind in general. He tried to remember how old he was. Couldn't. He tried to remember what year it was. He couldn't remember that either. Doctor, said the patient tentatively. Hmm, he said. You're so quiet. Sorry. You were talking away there, and then you got so quiet. Hmm. You see something terrible? Terrible? Some disease in my eyes? No, no, said Billy, wanting to doze again. Your eyes are fine. You just need glasses for reading. He told her to go across the corridor to see the wide selection of frames there. When she was gone, Billy opened the drapes and was no wiser as to what was outside. The view was still blocked by a Venetian blind which was hoisted clatteringly. Bright sunlight came crashing in. There were thousands of parked automobiles out there, twinkling on a vast lake of blacktop. Billy's office was part of a suburban shopping center. Right outside the window was Billy's own Cadillac Eldorado, Coupe de Ville. He read the stickers on the bumper. Visit Ozabu Chasm, said one. Support your police department, said another. There was a third. Impeach Earl Warren, it said. The stickers about the police and Earl Warren were gifts from Billy's father-in-law, a member of the John Burt Society. The date on the license plate was 1967, which would make Billy Pilgrim 44 years old. He asked himself this, where have all the years gone? Billy turned his attention to his desk. There was an open copy of the review of the review of optometry there. It was opened to an editorial, which Billy now read, his lips moving slightly. What happens in 1968 will rule the fate of European optometrists for at least 50 years, Billy read. With this warning, Jean Thuriart, Secretary of the National Union of Belgium Opticians is pressing for formation of a European Optometry Society. The alternatives, he says, will be the obtaining of professional status or, by 1971, reduction to the role of spectacle sellers. Billy Pilgrim tried hard to care. A siren went off scared the hell out of him. He was expecting World War Three at any time. The siren was simply announcing high noon. It was housed in a cupola atop a firehouse across the street from Billy's office. Billy closed his eyes. When he opened them, 
he was back in World War II again. His head was on the wounded rabbi's shoulder. A German was kicking his feet, telling him to wake up, that it was time to move on. The Americans, with Billy among them, formed a fool's parade on the road outside. There was a photographer present, a German war correspondent with Alicia. He took pictures of Billy's and Roland Weary's feet. The picture was widely published two days later as heartening evidence of how miserably equipped the American army often was, despite its reputation for being rich. The photographer wanted something more lively, a picture of an actual capture, so the guard staged one for him. They threw Billy into shrubbery. When Billy came out of the shrubbery, his face wreathed in goofy goodwill. They menaced him with their machine pistols, as though they were, as though they were capturing him then. Billy's smile as he came out of the shrubbery was at least as peculiar as Mona Lisa's, for he was simultaneously on foot in Germany in 1944 and riding his Cadillac in 1967. Germany dropped away, and 1967 became bright and clear, free of interference from any other time. Billy was in his way to a Lions Club luncheon meeting. It was a hot August, but Billy's car was air-conditioned. He was stopped by a signal in the middle of Ilium's black ghetto. The people who lived here hated it so much that they had burned down a lot of it a month before. It was all they had, and they had wrecked it. The neighborhood reminded Billy of some of the towns he had seen in the war. The curbs and sidewalks were crushed in many places, showing where the National Guard tanks and half-tracks had been. I'll read the rest, maybe tomorrow or some other day. Bye.